Thanks, Jacob, for reading that. Thank you, Brandon and Grace, for that time of worship. And uh, keep your spot there in um, John chapter 16. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're also going to be in 15 um, and 14 even a little bit. So we're going to be in this area. And so keep your spot there. But I want to start this morning with a story, uh, if you don't mind. I was at a conference one time a few years ago. And I just heard this witness from this man. And I wanted to share it with you. Many of you have probably heard this. Uh, There's this man, uh, and he struggled uh, fully with all forms of sexual impurity and lust. Um, This man was actually an established pastor at a church, uh, and yet he was caught up in this world of pornography. It had bound him kind of in the fullest degree. Uh, Pornography then turned into strip clubs, then turned into prostitution, uh, believe it or not. And at some point along the line, this man was discovered uh, in, his, um, in his ways, and he was actually ousted uh, from the church that he pastored, and, and rightly so, in his own words, he would say that was good of the church to, uh, to be rid of him in that time. So all of a sudden, this man who was a pastor at a church now is a jobless man, uh, neck deep in sexual impurity at its fullest. Um, and there's another interesting detail about it. He was married. He had a family. So once this man was ousted and and his secret was out, uh, this man's wife, as broken and as cheated and as hurt as she was, she decided to go to counseling with her husband with hopes of a saved marriage. So in the many counseling sessions they had, they received all forms of advice, as you would expect, and and certainly she uh, or he was blamed in most of them. Uh, He received the blame. Many of the counselors told him that he needed to fix his ways. It was actually on him. He needed to adjust. He needed to make some changes. But believe it or not, there were other counselors who actually put the blame on her. As if she wasn't keeping things interesting enough. Uh, He wasn't captivated by the marriage anymore. And so they actually said that it was her fault. So imagine being in her position. You've been cheated. You've been betrayed uh, in the fullest degree. Uh, And then you go uh, to counseling in hopes of saving the marriage, only to hear that you're the problem. It's kind of a tough place to be in. Yet this woman continued. She continued with her husband. She stayed at his side, even when every social and spiritual um, thing would tell her to end it all. In fact, she had every social and spiritual right to end it all, yet she remained. Eventually... Through the simple efforts of, a, uh, of simple people at a simple local church, the Lord began to change this man. Uh, praise God, from the inside out, by the cleansing of his word, this man has now been fully delivered from this. By the grace of God, he, he's serving in ministry now, speaking out to those who are caught in sexual impurity. Praise God for that. It's awesome. He and his wife are still married. He still has his family. He no longer has the impulses that he once had. And I, I want to go ahead and ask you this, and certainly it is remarkable to see the Lord's work to deliver a person from such things. But let me ask you this, what's the most remarkable thing about this story? I think our answer might be unanimous. It was her. It was her. She remained. She remained. So last week, Pastor Brett walked us through the first bit of chapter 15 in John, this wonderful passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Brett unpacked for us how how we are called to remain in Christ. We're going to unpack that today, how religion is the antithesis of, of remaining in the true vine. 
right? Jesus said, remain in me as I remain in you. And we are called to remain in Christ, which means to abide in him, to stay in him, to dwell and live in him and for him. And when we refuse to abide in Christ, we become vulnerable to the deceit of religion. Words like routine and heartless and mindless and passive, right? These become the adjectives of our faith, of our worship, of our pursuit, which are in direct contrast to, to the words that should describe our relationship with Christ, right? the words of devotion and intimacy and passion and connection. See, we are called to remain, to abide in Christ, and you and I both know that left to ourselves, our ability to abide in him is choppy at best. Left to ourselves, this is not something we can do effectively, right? And so we have received the grace of this. He abides in us. And I want to go ahead and ask a question to you, right? Even though we, we so imperfectly pursue him, we're covered in stains and wrinkles in our worship. We, we sinfully pursue him. We imperfectly abide in him. And yet, he has come to us. He is perfecting us. He is molding us so that one day we will be complete before him. A beautiful and radiant bride. Let me ask you, what is the most remarkable thing about that? Similar question to the first story I told you. The most remarkable thing is not our, our, our lame attempts at abiding in him, doing it ourselves. What's most remarkable is that the, all, the, the creator of all of the universe, the perfect God, would actually remain in us in the form of his son and his spirit. That's remarkable and somewhat ridiculous, right? The scandal of grace, that's what it is, okay? And so we're going to talk about what it means to remain in Christ today. And we're going to pick, uh, use a little bit more time to, to describe this, what it means for him to remain in us. What, him, what it means for him to remain in us. What is that grace? Okay, so we're going to define a few things here. But first we want to make a few clarifications, okay. Um, in John chapter 15, verse 5, we talked about this last week. Jesus says that, that apart from me you can do nothing. And we need to understand this. It is impossible to remain in him if he is not in us. This is impossible. Right? John 15, 9 says, as the father loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. You notice which one came first there, right? While we were still sinners, he died for us. It was out of his love for us that we had the option to remain. 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what Jesus says. So if you're here today and, and you have never chosen to receive Christ as your Savior, then much of the sermon, honestly, is just going to be information to you about what we believe, but it, it will not be able to be applied so I ask that you receive this information, but more than anything today, my prayer for you is that you would find your hope in God today, understanding that he has orchestrated this entire day, perhaps your life, to bring you to a place of, of hearing his word so that you may come to believe. So please hear this as a word for him. You need the grace of salvation today. You need this in your life. He died for you. He bled for you. He loves you. He has brought you here so that you can hear about him. Please see yourself as we all need to see ourselves as sinners in need uh, to repent and in need of his grace. Please find yourself in that and receive him today. I pray that you do that. Because it's impossible to remain in him if he is not in us. But secondly, here's another clarification. It is possible to remain with Christ, but not in Christ. 
It is possible to remain with Christ but not in Christ. And here's what we mean by that. In John 15, it talks about how Jesus says that there are those who, who do not bear fruit and so the Father cuts them off. It's pretty strong language. That if we do not remain in him, then we're nothing more than withering branches on our way to the fire. There's a lot of spiritual debate about this, and some scholars actually think that Jesus was referring specifically to Judas in these verses. Judas wasn't with them at the table at this time, um, um, yet Judas is the epiphany of what it means to be so close to the true vine, but never abiding. Right? He, he, he did ministry with Jesus for three years. He held an important position among the group of uh, disciples. He saw with his own eyes the miracles and power of Jesus on display. He even did miracles himself in Jesus' name. And still the whole time his eyes were fixed on wealth. He never gave his heart over to Christ in full submission and love. He is the perfect example of remaining with Christ but not in Christ. He was withering the whole time. Matthew 7, uh, verse 21 through 23 talks about this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? It's Judas. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, evildoers. 1 John 2, 18 and 19 talks about this. Uh, John says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. False teachers. And then he says this. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. The false teachers came from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, then they would have remained with us. But they're going showed that none of them belong to us. Okay. Now this room, I, my guess, is not filled with Judases, people who have experienced fully the works of, of the grace of Christ and yet still boldly deny the name of Christ. In fact, you're here today saying probably otherwise. But there are possibly many in this room who are in the place of remaining with Christ and not in Christ. You do the thing, you go to church, you have the Bible uh, verses around your house, you listen to Christian radio, but when it comes down to it, your heart is not connected with his. Your heart is still owned by wealth like it was for Judas. Your heart is still owned by your activity or your career or your reputation or your kids or your physical or athletic ability or your looks or whoever it is that you're dating at this point in time. Right? You have a sense of Christ about you, but your heart is owned by something else. And so you project a sense of Christianity, but deep down you're withering. This is what it means to remain with Christ, but not in Christ. You're on the edge. You're in the experience, but you've never submitted. You are not remaining in him, and he is not remaining in you. Man, I, I fear this for us. And I say it again, if this describes you at all, I pray that you wrestle with this for the rest of our time together. I pray that you don't hear anything else other than the fact that you need Jesus desperately. And that this is your opportunity to come to him today, to make a move towards him today. But if it helps, we're going to go and des describe some things here. First of all, what it means to remain in him. Here's a few things that we can take from that, uh, from John 15 and 16. What does it mean to remain in him? First of all, it means to remain in his word. 
to remain in his word. Big surprise, right? We're all about the word around here. So you knew that was going to make the sermon at some point. We remain in his word. Now, we're going to make this list, but I want to make a quick note that, that just because Christ remains in you doesn't mean that you're going to be doing these things to perfection. It doesn't mean that. Rather, what it means is that if Christ remains in you, then these will be draws. They will be convictions upon your heart so that you will be growing your entire life in these things. For example, take our first one on the list, right? The word to remain in Christ means to remain in his word. This is what it means. But it does not mean that every new believer needs to be a Bible scholar on the next day. This does not mean that. Rather, that part of your abiding in Christ is a lifelong developing of your love and desire to know his word, to be in his word, to be influenced by his word, to be in obedience to his word. But a huge red flag would be this. A person who claims Jesus but refuses his word has no passion for it, no conviction about it, openly expresses that they do not need it or that it has limited or no authority. These are red flags that run directly against a true abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, the word, according to John chapter 1. Now, John 15, 3, Jesus says this. He tells his disciples that they are cleaned by the word uh, that he spoke. And if you look at Ephesians 5, it talks about uh, the cleansing qualities of the word of God. In John 15, verse 10, uh, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, then you will remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. So point one was this, to remain in him means to remain in his word. But we also need to understand this, to remain in him means to remain in his love. And these two things are, are almost inseparable. In fact, I think they are inseparable. Jesus makes them inseparable by the way he talks about them in this passage. Look at John 14. Verse 15, go back a chapter, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my command and keeps him is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Do you see the connection there? Do you see the connection? There is a, there is a direct correlation between our application and display of love to Jesus Christ by our relationship with the word. How else do we know his commands, his teaching, by the way, except, except from his word? So the reason we, we give this any amount of time is this. To remain in him means to remain in his love, but we acknowledge it because when was the last time you considered that your attitude towards the Bible is a direct teller of your true love for Jesus Christ. Right? The attitude towards the scripture is a teller of your true love for Jesus Christ. Now we all say we love Jesus. I get that, right? I could say I love my wife, and I do. I love my wife, but, but I, if I never put it into motion, if I never act upon it, then all it is is words. If we are here and we declare with our hearts that we love Jesus Christ, but we take a total passive approach to this, then I'm glad your words say it because your life isn't. Because Jesus does not separate these two things. This is how we put our love on display as, it, as we obey it and as we live in the way that it demands and commands and prescribes for us. Okay? And secondly, this, when we consider love to remain in his love, it means being in constant acknowledgement of what his love for you has cost him. 
We're going to come to the table today. What a good opportunity for that, to be reminded of what his love has cost you. That we have nothing to offer, right? He gave us the model of love. To remain in his love causes us to love others how he loves, not based on what we can get out of the relationship. Not not even based on, on worth, but it's unconditional, it's unconditional, right? We don't, we don't make, get married to our spouses based on what they can do for us. That's not the point of it. We, get, we, 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 we put on display unconditional love that even if things are worse, even in sickness, right, love is on display. It is pursued. Right? So we remain in him by remaining in his word, by remaining in his love, and also this is what it means to remain in him means to remain uh, and to bear fruit, to bear fruit. See, part of the grace of Christ remaining in us is that he's given us his spirit to dwell in us, to equip us, to use us, enable us for gospel living. Bearing fruit is the spirit's work in our life. Um, it, it is a choice outside of the flesh, praise God. And so to remain in Christ means to choose and submit to the heading of the spirit in our lives so that everything about us puts Jesus Christ on display. Think about the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. How do we love like Christ's love? Look at John 15, 12 through 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, this is Christ-like love. It's sacrificial. It goes to the end. It's unconditional. This is how we love like Christ. How do we put joy on display like Christ put joy on display? Right, that we have joy even amidst suffering, peace even in, in the harshest tribulation, patience when the rest of the world is anxious, kindness to our enemies, goodness that shines in the dark places, gentleness with the harshest people, faithfulness when the odds are completely stacked against you, self-control when, when temptation is at its highest. There's a lot of people who bear fruit and they do not know Christ, right? There's a lot of kind people, good people, gentle people, patient, loving people who have no love for Jesus Christ. But for these things to be fruit means that they are done for Jesus and at a Jesus level so that he may be seen in our lives. That's the difference in our words, in our decisions, our obedience, our activity, our priorities, all of it. He is on display. What a red flag it is to find a long-term believer fail miserably at putting fruit on display because they have become complacent, chalking it up to that's just who I am. Perfection is not what I'm describing, rather the organic transformation that begins with the draw and the conviction to choose spirit over flesh, to bear fruit. Now for us to remain in Christ is to remain in his love, to remain in obedience to his word, to choose spirit over flesh so that every aspect of our lives puts Christ on display through spiritual fruit. Right? But this is not even an option unless he abides in us. We cannot abide in him if he does not abide in us. At the point of your conversion, when you give your life to Christ for the first time, from that point until glory, he abides in you. What a grace this is. What does it mean? What does it mean? This is what it means that he abides in us, first of all, coming off of last week. It means that it's not about what you can do. It's not about what you have to offer. Praise God, by the way. If it were all about what we could do, then we're, we're hopeless from the start. We have nothing to offer. Right? We remain in Christ not to earn his glory, but, but to experience it. 
And he remains in us so that we can actually have a chance at it. It's made possible by him. It's made possible by his spirit. And this is also what it means to, for him to abide in us. It means that he literally abides in us through his spirit, by his spirit. Look at John uh, 14, once again, verses 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. In John 15, verse 26 and 27, it talks about how the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he's going to be sent to testify about Christ. We read about him in John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11, where it talks about the work of the Spirit. Through the church, by the way, the Spirit moves through his church to prove the world how wrong uh, it, it is. When it comes to sin and righteousness and judgment. See, the church is on the front lines of the condemnation of Satan himself, the prince of this world. Isn't that awesome? John 16 later, uh, in verse 12 through 15, says that Christ is going to use him to guide us in truth, to use us for his glory. This is the work of the Spirit. Now, we surveyed the Holy Spirit uh, in depth a few weeks ago. So if you're interested in this more, please go to our website and listen to that sermon. But, but for today, our point is this. This is how he abides in us, through his spirit. He abides in us in a very literal sense. He preserves us for flourishing, leads us to freedom, equips us for ministry. Only through his spirit can we be fully aligned with the will and desire and heart and mission of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we actually have a role to play oftentimes in, in choosing the spirit over our own desires, right? The Bible talks about how we can grieve the spirit, how we can quench the spirit based on our choices, right? How often we give in to sin. And, and there's a lot of times when, when we have that decision to put the fruit of the spirit on display, right? We can come to that place and we can, we can know that we are in this decision and it is time to choose what we want to do. Our desires are selfish desires or or what the spirit is leading us to do through his word we come to those places right and we can there's some fruits of the spirit that I think we can see that role a little easier but there's others that in all honesty I I think it's just a grace of the Lord because I don't know how people possibly can choose these things for example to choose joy in Christ when your husband has just been diagnosed with brain cancer that's a grace of the Lord to choose peace in a non-fake way, when everything else about your life is just filled with tragedy and heartache. And yet this is a work of the Spirit. And we've been, by the way, noticing a streak of this heaviness, right? These tragedies flowing through FBN. Um, some of you are in these places. And yet over and over again, we see the church experience the heaviness and the pain. And yet there is ultimate peace and joy in the hope of Christ that not even the harshest circumstances can overcome. Praise God. Isn't it, it's not always seamless. It's not always without pain or weak points or doubt, but his hope wins out every time. And this brings us to our next point, because what it means to, for him to remain in us means that his joy remains in us. His joy remains in us. John 15, verse 11, look at this. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's a simple verse there. What he's, what he's talking about is this, as we walk in obedience to Jesus' words, as we remain in his love, his joy will make our joy complete. There are so many people out there in pursuit of complete joy, 
But please know this, all joy sought apart from Christ will always be incomplete. It will always be temporary. It will always leave you, leaving you feeling insufficient and let down. So we buy things, we smoke things, we drink things, we do things, we fall in love with things that leave us temporarily satisfied and never fulfilled. Only in Jesus is your joy made complete. Only in Jesus is your joy made complete. In John 16, he's telling his disciples that he's going to leave them. There's going to be a moment of grief. They didn't quite understand what was going on. He's, he's trying to prepare them for what's about to happen. So in John 16, uh, look at verse 19 with me. John 16, verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I mean when I said, In a, lie, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will meet, weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He goes on to describe how, how a woman has much pain and grief as she is giving birth. But once she has that baby in her hands, all of that pain and grief leaves, right? There's joy in it. And he's saying, I'm going to do the same thing for you. You're going to experience some grief. But man, I'm going to bring joy, right? And he's talking about this in an immediate sense. First of all, he's just saying, I'm going to be here, but I, I, I'm also going to leave very soon. And you're going to weep and mourn because I'm going to be brutalized on the cross. But you're going to, it's going to be turned to joy just three days later when I come up from the grave. But he's also telling them this. He's also preparing them for another thing. He's preparing them for another form of grief that they're going to experience. Look at John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. And the next point is, is not always the preferred point, but what it means for Christ to, to remain in us is simply this. You will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. It is a biblical truth. You will be persecuted if you follow Christ. And the reason why this makes this section of him remaining in us and not us remaining in him is because the world hated him first. So somewhat, somewhat of, of proof about, about his remaining in you is how much flack you get sometimes, believe it or not. And just so you don't think that this is just Jesus' word to the disciples because they were going to have to experience what they experienced under Nero and these oppressors and very terrible deaths. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that broadens the scope a little bit. In Acts 14.22, I love this, Paul's message to the growing number of disciples of Jesus was this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said this right after he was stoned nearly to death. Now, is this not a terribly hard concept to, con to convince the middle class American church of, with which most of us are a part of? Right? How does persecution even happen in the country of religious freedom? I know some of you sneer at that, but all you have to do is go to another nation and you realize we have a lot of religious freedom. Okay? How, how do we experience persecution? Here's just a minor example. I hear often how people are somewhat shy about sharing the gospel with their friends and acquaintances because they don't want to potentially damage the relationship going forward. A small minor case of how we might experience persecution. But I just need to ask this. If you have been prayerful about this person, first of all, it starts there. 
If you have been prayerful and your burden has grown for this person and you feel like you are to, to, to speak to this friend or this loved one. And so you humbly and gently go to that person. You share the gospel with them out of this burden and love for them. Do you think Jesus will be frustrated with you about that? Or even if your friend rejects you. Do you think Jesus is not going to fill your heart with joy out of that grief just like he promised to in the scriptures? This is a small example, by the way. There's churches meeting in Africa who are, who, who are not sure a car bomb's not going to drive right into the middle of their assembly. There's believers in the Middle East whose, whose children are being butchered because they love Jesus Christ. See, what we deal with is pretty minor, but it doesn't mean that we are to live costless lives. Cost of comfort, of, of, of convenience. We might have to risk our relationships. We might have to, to, to give up our priorities for his. The cost and risk of self-sacrifice, of sacrificial love to another person. The risk of mockery and isolation and rejection, right? These things are real. I was listening to the radio the other day. Well, it was actually a while back, but it just stuck with me. This woman called into the radio praising God that she got a really good parking space at Walmart. No kidding. We got so-called Christian books out there about being the, the better you and, and going out there and grabbing the blessing anyway. It's all about hyper-blessing. There's, no, uh, there's no mind at all towards, towards cost. What does it cost? And even as I'm describing it, you're probably thinking, yeah, that, that's silly. But in all honesty, we could take a look at our last week and, and many of us might realize, yeah, that's about the level I lived last week. That was about it. Praising God for little things. No cost. That's it. Please do not let American Christianity fool you, thinking we can live costless lives for Christ. We have got to put ourselves at risk for the cause of the gospel. And within this, there is more joy and blessing than you could possibly imagine. After all, he did this for us, did he not? He paid the ultimate price. He's worthy of any cost we could give. And he wouldn't call us to this, by the way, if he didn't know that it was actually the path to fullness of freedom and joy and peace with him, even in the pains of life. Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen. He's famously known in the scriptures as the first martyr, stoned to death in the name of Christ. Rocks coming, hitting him in the head and in his body, and he's brutally murdered. And the Bible says that as he's taken this beating, he's laying down and he looks up and he he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Other times in scripture you read about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but he's always sitting. And and so Jesus, or Stephen's just being pelted with these rocks and he looks up and Jesus is standing. Almost like Jesus is standing in, in honor of Stephen and this death he has taken. Let me ask you, now that Stephen is at the right hand of Jesus, now that he is in Jesus' presence, do you think he regrets that decision? I don't think so. I think every blast from every stone was worth it now that he is in, in the presence of Jesus Christ. See, Peter, he was an impulsive disciple. The, the, the Christ used him, transformed him, built his church upon him. He, he moved mountains for the early church. But Peter also was persecuted. He was martyred. Not only that, but church tradition says that his wife was crucified just before he was. Knowing the risk, Peter still represented Christ fully, even to his own death and the death of his beloved. And in my mind, that's as worst as it gets. That's worst case scenario. To die a miserable death and to have to watch your wife suffer at first. 
It's awful. But believe it or not, and I firmly believe this, Peter regrets none of it because he is in the presence of Christ Jesus. Dare I say it, he would do it all over again because he is in the presence of Christ Jesus, right? He is not only worth it for the honor we'll receive. Man, he is already worth it for the sacrifice he made. Think about the countless martyred souls in other nations daily experiencing costs beyond anything we can fathom. All of them carrying no regret as they stand next to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in glory. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. John 16, 33. We'll close with this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take art, I have overcome the world. And this ends his, his, his talk with the disciples. After this, he prays to the Father and he's arrested. This is, this is what he leaves them with. Have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. I have overcome the world. None of these things can trump what I have done for you. No, no terrible death could trump the glory that I have in store for you because I have overcome the world. And so when you remain in me and I in you, it means that, that my overcoming of the world is in you. That's what it means for him to remain in us. We overcome because he's overcome. We have victory because he's victorious. We have peace because he's our savior. We have joy because he is our hope. Does his hope remain in you this morning? Does his joy remain in you this morning? Does his willingness to take risks for the sake of the gospel remain in you this morning? Does his saving grace remain in you this morning? We're going to respond this morning by, by remaining in him in a very active way, by coming to the table, the ordinance of communion. Everything we do is a response to him. So as we consider the grace of his remaining in us, I pray that we wrestle this morning with the response of our lives to him, and the response is a simple call. Remain in him. Obey his word. Choose his spirit. Take risks for the gospel, and his joy will be complete in you. Let's pray. Our Father, our great God, we humbly bow our hearts before you now. Amazed at your grace for us, God. That we can have a vibrant relationship in you through the name and power of Jesus Christ. Who has saved us from sin, saved us from death, saved us from punishment. Father, it is unreal. I pray for any soul in this room who does not know you. Who has never put their faith and hope in you. That today, in this moment, they would move towards you, God. That they would choose you. Father, we really believe you've orchestrated this day to bring them into this place to hear this word. God, we ask that you would save them in this time. God, for all of those out there who, who have put on a good show and they're remaining with Christ, there's a sense of Christianity about them, God, but, but they're really withering. Father, I pray that, that as you remain in them, God, that they would really, really be compelled to remain in you through your word and, and through through gospel living, Lord, that they would be reminded of your love for them, your unconditional love that cost you everything. God, may we love like that. May we be compelled by that, Lord, as we come to this time of communion. God, may you receive praise and glory for it all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.